Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I'm professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City in Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my two friends, usual co-hosts, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Harrisonburg, pastor of a PCA church, not pastor of Harrisonburg in general. No. Although some people consider me that way. To be, he would aspire to be so. Uh-huh. He's actually a pastor of a mega church. Yeah, in uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, and uh, Amy Bird, uh, the woman's pastor. <laughs> <laughs> is, is OPC doing that now? Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about doing like a Labor Day sermon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think OPC is doing that now. I mean, I, I, there, there, there's a few, there's a few things happening in the OPC. I won't get into any detail. There's yeah, we're, we're talking to the Southern Baptist Convention about this. You know. There's a few interesting things going on in the OPC, which might actually someday have to be dealt with, but I'm just speculating. I don't want to get into any controversy here. I'm just saying. Well, if we want to avoid controversy, if yeah, you thanks. So, uh, I think you just confuse our listenership there by mispronouncing the word. Oh, sure. Uh, if, we yeah. can, if we can avoid controversy, one of the things we want to talk about today uh, is summer reading that the summer months, uh, particularly for academics like myself, uh, provide a a nice break from uh, a a rigorous teaching regime and allows me to catch up on on a bit of reading. Amy, of course, as a woman of leisure, living the spoiled wife life, uh, she gets to read all year round. Uh, And Todd, as as pastor, only works one day a week. So he's got six (laughs) days to devote to reading. So we thought we would today uh, reflect upon things that we're reading this summer. Uh, Todd, any anything yes. on your bedside table? I have I have stacks that have been growing, and uh, a few uh, that I've got here um, uh, with me in my in my living room that have been a lot of fun recently. Now this one is fun, although it's a couple of years old. Um, I, I I picked this up at a at a bookstore in Washington D.C. It's called Barbarian Days: A Surfing Life by William Finnegan. Uh, went over the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago for uh, for memoir. Now I, I've never surfed and I never will surf, but <laughs> but um, it is excellent and a very very fun read. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's the kind of memoir I really really like, and it ends up like any good book like this. It ends up being about much more than just quote you know surfing, but about life in general. And it's been a really fun read. Um, another guy that I just um, uh, discovered, and I was praising him to Carl and Amy, you, you all, just a few days back, but um, uh, I'm just about finished with a book called uh, Being Mortal, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Uh, Atul Gawande is a, a surgeon and a professor at Harvard Medical School and a best-selling author and uh, nominee for National Book Award and uh, other writing awards as well. He's written five or six books. And Being Mortal is a book he wrote several years ago, and it's about what it sounds like. It's about death and dying and about um, how we think about our own mortality. And it's fascinating coming from a 
a surgeon because he he wonders through it. First of all, grateful that we have things like modern medicine and ways to to treat people of various diseases and and injuries and problems that used to be an automatic death sentence a uh, hundred years ago. So he, he's not against any of that. He's not an advocate for assisted suicide or anything like that. But he does wonder, and I think he makes some good points about the cost of extending life well beyond what somebody is able to kind of uh, support. So, so he gives examples of, you know, the, the 89 year old person who gets a transplant or, or whose life is extended six months through heroic efforts, even though they're on the verge of death from cancer. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is their misery is just extended for another six months. Mm -hmm. And so he wonders about some of the deep questions. Yes. And so again, we're not talking about assisted suicide, Mm -hmm. but at what point do we continue to go through heroic efforts Mm -hmm. that end up only really extending a person's sufferings? Uh, I, I don't think that he is a Christian. Uh, this is not a, quote, Christian book, but it is a book that would give Christians a lot to think about. And I would also say, if you're a preacher or a teacher, um, there's great material in here to add to some of your teaching or preaching in terms of helping people think through matters of, of life and death. It's, it's really, really good. Well, and also, I mean, I think a related question is uh, when we're praying for people who are suffering like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm you get to that point where you don't know whether you should be praying for healing or for, you know, for the Lord to, to a take that passage. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, I that, that's a good point. And that's a really sensitive point, but I have the same time. Every time somebody asks us to pray for their, you know, 96 year old great grandmother who's in the hospital and pray that the Lord will heal her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm always the one who wants to say, how about we, we pray that the Lord now finally take her home. You know, mm-hmm. and, and of course, you know, if in some circles, if you bring that up, you're, you're kind of the turd in the punch bowl, right? <laughs> Can we say that on mortification of spin? <laughs> I mean, you say it to us plenty off air. So yeah, right. We've had T. David Gordon on, so you can say that's true. Well, I have a few more, but let's, let's shift over Amy to you uh, and give us a couple. Okay. I work more than one day a week, so I probably haven't read right. as many books as you right. this summer so far. Yeah, yeah. But I have like really tried to decide to read more novels again because mm-hmm. um, it's been a while. I get so caught up in theology books and yep. nonfiction books, which I love to read, but I love novels too. So mm-hmm. summer's, I think, a good time to do that. And so I picked up this one from the library called The Lost Vintage by Anne Ma. And... Um, Oh my goodness. It was so good. I devoured it. It was an excellent novel. It kind of has two time periods going on because it starts with our time period with this young woman kind of training for her master of wine um, expertise. And she's from California, but she visits her family's vineyard in Burgundy. And she discovers as she's helping the family clean out the cellar, all these family secrets in the cellar. And, um, they discover they have a great half aunt who kind of left this wartime diary journal. And so it kind of goes back and forth between this mysterious aunt's journal entries. And um, she joined the resistance after the German invasion in France. So um, it's so crazy. But then what happens is she gets treated as a collaborator after the liberation. And so it really exposes some history about how 
women were treated after the liberation. They were blamed as collaborators. A lot of them were, you know, either raped or, you know, forced to um, be in relationships with some of these soldiers just so their children could eat, you know, things like this. Well, this woman was not even a collaborator at all. Her stepmother was. Their heads are shaved in, in public. They're tarred, stoned, stripped, really crazy stuff. I'm waiting for somebody to write a novel about the great wines of Canada. <laughs> but, I don't know. Yeah, you know, just to bring up fiction, because I, I, I still try to always have some fiction going. And one that I'm reading right now, I, I, I've only read, I think, one other book by this man. But I'm, I'm working my way. It, it, it began as a serialized novel in six small novellas, all telling kind of the same story. But I'm reading The Green Mile by Stephen King, and oh. it, is, it is excellent, beautifully written. It's not one of his, quote, horror movies. There's a supernatural mm -hmm. element to it, but it is beautifully, beautifully written and heartbreaking. And anyway, yeah. My book also makes you want to drink wine and eat bread and cheese. Oh, I like cheese <laughs> this, is really, this is like some sort of French food expert. Uh, I love cheese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it makes you hungry. Dirty. I'm going to read a cheese book. Yeah. Got any cheese books, Carl? No, I'm not, not reading cheese at the moment. Uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I'm, I'm, a lot of my time is spent in a comparative reading of uh, Our Bodies, Ourselves, the, the manual to feminism produced by the Chicago Women's Collective <laughs> oh, nice. in 1970. Do not dream. recommend it to anybody, but it's for this book I'm writing, it, it allows a, a fascinating snapshot on how the sexual revolution has transformed feminism. But buy my book. And that will save oh, you. Oh, sure. Through, go out and <laughs> yeah. buy my book. I've got a couple of fiction books on the go. I like you. Know, I like to, to have a bit of fiction. Um, for light entertainment, uh, Katrina and I are huge fans of Icelandic, uh, well, of, of Scandinavian crime right. fiction. We've, we've read all of the Norwegian, Swedish, and Finnish ones mm -hmm. we can get our hands on. We're now on to Iceland. <laughs> so I'm reading the, uh, the Tora Goodman's Dottir uh, cycle <laughs> of novels written by Irsa Sigurdottir. Uh, so that's good, good Icelandic. <laughs> uh, and I'm reading, rereading Catch-22, probably oh, the great yeah. anti-war novel of the, the 20th century. I'm rereading uh, Jane Eyre right now. Oh, Jane Eyre's boring. Does anybody shoot anyone in Jane Eyre? No, no. Nobody gets bombed. Nobody gets shot. It's, well, uh, then it must Somebody gets stabbed, I seem to remember. terrible. They do get attacked. <laughs> uh, but Catch-22, I, I read it at school. I had to read it at school for a literature exam and haven't really looked at it since, but it's a great, it's a novel without a plot, but the characters are so fascinating. When I first read it, of course, I identified with uh, Yasserian, the central character. Now I identify with the soldier in white, you know, the guy who's just totally encased in plaster in the hospital and just lies on the bed for the entire book. And there are two bottles, one going in through his mouth, filling in with water, one draining the water away from somewhere else. And every now and then somebody comes in and just switches the bottles around. <laughs> and he's this sort of perfect metaphor for an absolutely pointless existence, which is pretty That's much where I feel I am these days. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to write a sort of catch 22 about big Eva. Uh, yeah. But the problem is there are just so many general dreidels and Colonel Cathcart's in Big Eva, the, the book would not have much room for, for any other characters. I will say this, though, Todd, Chaplin Tapman 
Every okay. time I read about Chapel in Tapman, it's your face that's must be <laughs> the fine man. He's a so fine when man. I write my novel, it will be Chaplin Todman. Nobody okay, make the connections. Okay. It's a fine man. When you're reading novels, like sometimes you imagine people as the characters. Oh, all the time. I picture people. I have I have to picture the stuff in my mind as I, yeah. as I move along. Okay, so I've got. I was introduced to um, the novelist uh, John Williams about a year ago. Um, his his novel stoner about uh, an obscure English professor at the University of Missouri in the early part of the 20th century. John McWhorter, the, uh, the, the linguist at Columbia University, calls it a, a perfect novel. And I read it and was absolutely entranced by it. And, and then I, I, I just finished his novel. It, it's a Western. It's called Butcher's Crossing. Oakley Hall, who's a great American writer, wrote one of the great Westerns entitled Warlock, but, but Oakley Hall called Butcher's Crossing the greatest Western ever written. And it is compelling, compelling reading. It, and, and of course, you know, it's not just about the action taking place, but it's about the world and it's, it's really, really great. And then I, I also just completed, so, so John Williams wrote three novels. He, he was an English professor and he wrote three novels and they're considered widely to be three of the finest novels of the 20th century. His book, Augustus, about Augustus Caesar, won the National Book Award um, back in the, uh, the 1970s. So he, he wrote these three incredibly different novels, three different genre of fiction, and they're all world-class examples of the form. Uh, but but his, not, his Western, Butcher's Crossing by John Williams, must read. Well, I checked out from the library, Dignity by Chris Arnaud. Have you seen that? That one kind of being talked about a little bit. Okay, so it's kind of got the similar themes as J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, Mm -hmm. except for, and so J.D. Vance kind of, he writes a foreword or something to it or endorses it. But this Chris Arnod, it kind of comes from Wall Street. He's upper class. I read an article about this book, yes. It was reviewed in public discourse, I think. Was it? A few weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, so he kind of drops his whole lifestyle career and and becomes obsessed with the poorest neighborhoods yeah. in the country and kind of lives in them for two years. And he, t- he makes some really interesting observations, like things that he notices about, you know, drug addicts or people who are stuck in poverty who won't leave. And some of the things that they value, like that he used to turn his nose down to, like a sense of place, faith. Uh, he starts going to some churches. But the odd thing to me is like, he's got a wife and two kids at home. You know, he kind of goes into a little bit of a drug addiction with pills himself, drinking too much, you know, hanging mm-hmm. out with these people. And so he, he leaves his place mm-hmm. <laughs> to enter these other places. And I just wonder like what that does to his own family. Mm. Um, he isn't able to reconcile things at the end in his mind. I don't feel like very well, but mm-hmm. one chapter that I found very interesting was the one on McDonald's and he just, you know, and that's another place, you know, so many people look down on, but he just talks about how this is the meeting place for so many people. Interesting. Um, it's a community uh, right. McDonald's. And so that's where he would go first and each town city would be the McDonald's. Mm-hmm. That's where he would meet the people. George Orwell in the 1930s wrote two books, uh, Down and Out in Paris and London, yep. and The Road to Wigan Pier. And they're both sort of 
travelogues, or, or at least certainly in Roads We Can Be, the first half is a travelogue of, of here you have this old Etonian, uh, Orwell was an Etonian, he was a, a policeman uh, in the Raj in India, and then he spends his time among down and outs and, and records his experience very much like that, and it's, mm-hmm. it, it offers fascinating insights into yeah, there were some really community good insights. structures below the surface. Mm-hmm. And he, he's also photographs. Um, right. So there's, you know, Todd's kind of book. It's got lots exactly. of Exactly. There, there's there's yeah. photographs. I've seen some of the photographs in a... Yeah. In the the photographs are really good. Yeah. yeah. And depressing to a certain yeah. extent. I mean, well, yeah. that's why they're so good. I mean, yeah. I think they really yeah. kind of show into the soul mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Can I mention, uh, uh, I was going to mention one other book before I speak about my edifying books. Yes. (laughs) That Americans may have come across. It's called The Professor and the Parson. Yes. A story of desire, deceit, and defrocking. I was reading a review in the literary review a couple of months ago about this this biography of this total con man who'd passed himself off as a priest, married at least eight times, been in and out of prison for bigamy, etc., etc. Suddenly I realized I recognized the name. I knew this person from mm-hmm. academic conferences yeah. when I was uh, treasurer of the Society for Reformation Studies in, in England. And I remember we were, we were, as a society, we were going to have a tour of the Cambridge University Library and and at the last minute, the whole thing was thrown into jeopardy because the librarian at the time, who was a very godly Anglican man, saw the name Robert Peters on the visitor list and uh, realized that he'd been banned for life from using the Cambridge University Library for bigamy. Nice. <laughs> you laugh, I suppose. But there's an element of, A, those were the days when being a bigamist got you banned from a library. I, I long <laughs> That's <laughs> pretty crazy, right? <laughs> secondly, this book is a page turner. Yes, it is. Uh, it's, the guy is, it's hard to describe the book because the sheer craziness of what this mm-hmm. guy gets away with is insane. Yeah. Uh, I think he ends up appointing himself as the archimandrite of the Polish old Catholics and he invents a religion effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the serious lessons from this book is how gullible people are. Right. Mm. How gullible people are and how gullible particularly I think academics and religious people are Mm -hmm. in that this man is able to thrive because for some reason, even those who know his track record always want to think that he's changed and give him a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. So Mm -hmm. I would recommend if you want a very entertaining day and a half by the beat, (laughs) reading a book, The Professor and the Parson, A Story of Desire, Deceit, and Defrocking by Adam Sisman. Mm -hmm. I'm just thankful that the Society of Reformation Studies was mentioned generically, and the office holders at the time who'd fallen (laughs) for this man were not named. (laughs) Carl, would you, would you, because I'm reading it at your, at your recommendation from several weeks back, would you, would you agree that uh, part of this man's success is that he had a, he had a, a knack for fitting in with the upper classes in England, who tend oh, yes. to just real like like Kim Philby, if you know, yeah. if, if you if you look like and feel like, and if they believe you have a pedigree, it's polite to believe whatever he says. Yes, I knew him as this uh, small man, always dressed in, in very dark priestly type clothes, mm-hmm. very well spoken, bit of a name dropper thoroughly plausible in a, in a British establishment uh, mm-hmm. way. But uh, again, fascinating study. And mm-hmm. as I say, if, if, you, if there's a lesson to learn from it, it's, it's the sheer gullibility of people when confronted with plausibility. The other side of it is this, and, and the author makes this point. Peters makes no money out of any of this. 
you know, we often tend to think that power and corruption are connected to material gain. Peters gets nothing material out of this. Yeah. He yeah. gets status. Status. He gets mm -hmm. status. And that's a very, very interesting phenomenon. And as I've said many times on this podcast, you know, you don't have to have a lot of power for power to corrupt you. The pastor of a 12-member mm. church can be a cult leader. Mm -hmm. And I think Peter's is a great example that it's not just money that motivates people. It's something more intangible. Mm -hmm. Well, that was Jim Jones. That was Jim Jones. Yeah. Uh, he lived simply. He lived, uh, he, he bought his clothes at secondhand clothing stores. It was never about money for Jim Jones. It was about power. Okay. We're talking about true crime here. I've got one that I'm just about done with and you've got to get this. Oh. It's called Norco 80, N-O-R-C-O, -O, Norco 80. It's, it's, it's about what, what still stands as one of the most violent bank robberies in American history. Happened in Norco, California in 1980. And, and what would, what's interesting about it in our context is the motivation of the robbers. If you have any interest in the development and popularization of evangelicalism in the late 70s, you will be interested in this book because what motivated the robbers, well, one of them was baptized by Chuck Smith in the late 70s, as Calvary Chapel was being kind of born and baptized in the beach there. And, and he, he grabbed hold of premillennialism and took hold of some things that Chuck Smith said in the late 70s about Christ returning probably around 1980 because of all of these things that had happened. And so he, he was prepping for the end time. And he had two friends that bought into all of this apocalyptic stuff as well. Kidding me. And, and they had to rob a bank in order to, to get the resources they were going to need for when Jesus came back. How do and, you get there? How do you and, get to robbing a bank? And, and, they, and they amassed for the end this, this impressive arsenal, made grenade launchers and grenades, and it is stunningly violent in, in terms of, of the firepower they had. Uh, lives were lost. But, but the underlying theme of taking premillennialism, twisting it, and and using it as a pretext to uh, to go and rob a bank and a, a bank robbery that's still used by law enforcement agencies across the country as a worst case scenario. Uh, it's fascinating storyline through that. So yeah, well, we only have a couple of minutes left, and we need yep. to get to something like theological, something, something yes. edifying. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to quickly recommend then Valley of Vision. Yes. Oh uh, yeah. I'm so sort of brained I out. I love using that to moment. pray Valley with Vision in the morning. It's always a great resource. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, Todd and I found out that we're reading the same book yes. right now um, as we were talking pre-show, and it's Michael Morales' Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, a biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. And I'm about a little over 100 pages in. I'm going through this one slowly. Mm -hmm. And... Oh my goodness. I mean, it's part of the new studies in biblical theology series edited by D.A. Carson. And it's a great series. Yeah, it's a really good series. But this, I mean, uh -huh. this one's like Beale's book for me in the sense that yeah. it's really opening doors to how you read scripture and the mm -hmm. whole Levitical context of the Pentateuch. Just reading the first couple chapters of this book just shows how it opens a lot of doors of how you read creation, Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah. And just, uh, he makes such a good case for Leviticus being the heart of the mm -hmm. Pentateuch's narrative with Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement kind of mm -hmm. being the, the deepest 
cultic penetration mm-hmm. um, into divine presence. Mm-hmm. There's so many different things on um, how sacred time is arranged chiastically around Leviticus. That was a fascinating yeah. section. It's right. really good. Yeah, it's really good. And I, I, th- I think it's, for me, this rises uh, up to the, to the best couple of volumes in that whole series. It's, it's really well done. Yeah. Um, and then just one theology text I'll, I'll I think I'm going to be able to recommend it. I'm not far enough into it to be able to go, man, you've got to get this. But so far, I'm, I'm really appreciating it. It's called Against God and Nature, The Doctrine of Sin by Thomas McCall. It's a part of the Crossway series, Foundations of Evangelical Theology. And of course, we really enjoyed Stephen Wellham's volume in that series on Christology. This one is on the doctrine of sin. Uh, McCall uh, is uh, an Arminian, but he is a, uh, a classical Arminian. And so, for instance, I'm reading his section right now on the doctrine of original sin, and it's really good. And, and one of the things that's helpful is that as a PCA pastor now, you know, with, with revoice and side B homosexuality, really seeking ways into the PCA, one of the things they get wrong repeatedly is the doctrine of original sin. And just reading his section on original sin has been, again, a reminder of, of kind of the serious nature of this present debate in the PCA over, over revoice. So, so far, I'm really enjoying Thomas McCall's uh, Against God in Nature, the Doctrine of Sin. So One last book that I've not started to read yet, but mm-hmm. uh, just arrived on my desk, is the second volume of Petrus van Maastricht's. Yes, century uh, dogmatic theology. So, uh, yes. also anybody out there wanting a heavy book to take to the beach with them to make everybody look <laughs> as if you're intellectual? Yes. Petrus van Maastricht, uh, yeah. and it comes with a dust cover, so you could actually put, you know, Vivi Vendetta uh, graphic novel <laughs> inside the dust cover and still right. like right. intellectual. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, that is that is on my list. I can't wait to get it. Yeah, I have one last question before I close this up. Um, mm-hmm. Since we were talking about how we read and visualize our characters. When you guys read, if you know the author of the book, mm-hmm. do you hear their voice? When I read your books, I do. That's why I can only read a page at a time. It's like, <laughs> it's like nails going down the side of paint or something. Goodness. Yeah. No, but like, okay, like if they have an accent, yeah. do you hear their accent? Yes, I, I, do. I tend to. Otherwise, yeah. they just sound like me, but on the yeah. whole, yes. Even the women sound like me, which is a bit creepy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. If, if I know that the, the author is English, I will tend to, to hear it in my mind. Isn't that funny? In an English accent, yeah. yeah. Does it sound as if it's spelt better and is more intelligent? <laughs> well, I find that they pronounce a lot of words poorly, but other than that, um, I, I like it, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, when, I, when I'm reading, I mean, I was reading something by Sinclair Ferguson the other day, and I, and I was hearing it in yeah, a Scottish voice. voice. Yeah. Mm. That's funny. Yeah. That is neat. I, okay. I tell you, the one person I can't do that with, James Montgomery Boyce. I don't read oh, a lot really? of really. But he's got this sort of weird, deep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he uh, looked geeky, but he's he's got a. But he has this voice is very than Johnny Cash, very and I just powerful. Can't, yeah, I, I just can't replicate that voice in my yeah. head. The, the, fir- the first time I heard audio of James Montgomery voice, I was shocked. It was cognitive dissonance. I know because, because I read him. Sound, it did not sound like he looked. Yeah, hairs go up on the back of your head. Yeah, right. it's he a like deep, a deep, gravelly voice. Sounds better yeah. than Johnny Cash. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay well i better wrap us up with that um thanks for listening everyone hopefully we've given you some good suggestions for your summer or you know i would love some hashtag mortification of spin reading on twitter and let us know what you guys are reading this summer because i need some more good 
novel ideas, even though I have a pretty good list going right now. So we welcome you to do that. And also we wanted to give away one of the books we were talking about. Uh, we thought we better do that with a Christian book that we were talking about. We did a lot of secular books here today too that were good. But if you go over to our website at mortificationofspin.org, you've got some different options. You can read from our blog posts. You can leave a donation to help with our podcast. And you can also register to win this week, Michael Morales' book, Who Shall Ascend? The Mountain of the Lord. And that is published by IVP. And we are excited to give away a couple copies to some lucky winners. So um, go on over there this week, and we will talk to you next week. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Then down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk, harder than a match, Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... A few years ago, I began noticing a sort of drift theologically in people I knew personally and in public figures. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. I saw them latch onto social justice issues, begin to drift more and more into unorthodox beliefs. That interview is next time. Join us then. Really good intentions here, but this is probably not the best kind of Bible to have. I think you should make him burn it out in the front garden. You should you should beat him for even receiving. I've got a stack of study burn. Bibles now that are do not recommend. Yeah. I mean, yeah, knowing. yeah, uh, yeah. You almost feel if it's got the word "study" on the front. I know. Of it, <laughs> oh, not, I'll tell you one that I would actually like to have would be the archaeology study Bible that just has the most updated. Um, things that yeah. they have found. That would be an interesting one to have just simply yeah. for as you're doing uh, prep to say, oh, and incidentally, two years ago, this was dug up and nobody, you know. But I think we need the men's archaeology Bible, though, and yes. the, the women's, you know, for like so digging uh-huh. up things like the laundry or yeah. the, uh, or the hairdressers' w- places w- in the ancient world. Women are right. interested in the that. The women's uh, devotional archaeology <laughs> Bible. Yeah. That's what we need. <laughs>